And in the prior talks, we have been covering two different sections. We started with covering the Song of Solomon and talk about how in the Song of Solomon, there is this presentation of uh, growing in Christ, moving from a very me-centered position, saying that I love my beloved because his kisses are sweet as wine, which is I love my beloved because of what he gives me, all the way to the end of the Song of Solomon where she was totally given over to her beloved and had lost all concept of it's what I grabbed from him, but it's just being with him. And that this tremendous, and this has got some of those steps the handout does laid out. And then in our last talk, we went to 1 John, the second chapter, and we talked about the scriptures there that talk about growing from little children to boys to young men to fathers. And it talks about uh, growing from little children whose sins are forgiven all the way up through being victorious over the enemy, all the way up to fathers, and the distinguishing characteristic of fathers was that they know our Heavenly Father, that they know, not know about, but that they know our Heavenly Father. And one of the things we emphasize there to me is a very important verse, John 17, 3, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. To know the Father and the Son is eternal life. And so we're, on our handout, we're on the third column today, and we're going to a parable, Matthew 13, about where Jesus talked about sowing. And we are, most of us are pretty familiar with that parable and we're gonna be more familiar as soon as we finish the talk today. So this is, this is a, a special thing that the Lord listed out about what happens when he sows inside of us and what happens in growth. Before I get to that, I want to mention a few verses just to reemphasize two things that God is the one who causes growth and the second thing is that Jesus strengthens you in time of growing. He strengthens you in time of growing. And one of the reasons I want to mention this, it was so good to hear Andy's prayer that started out this morning, because if we don't recognize how God is the power and the energy and the resource that makes all good things happen, then we heavily depend on ourselves and that leads to tremendous frustration not only frustration, it leads to real discouragement. I was talking with Larry before we started here and he was saying that, you know, John Kellogg had said, the older that you get, you realize that you don't really control very many things. And uh, I don't want to identify with that too hard because I absolutely believe it, but it puts me in the older that you get category. And so I, I don't know if I want to jump in that, but it's really true. The Lord is really in charge. We control some things, but not nearly as much as we generally think that we do. But the Bible says that God causes growth. And the emphasis here is that once we become Christians, we generally have people that accept Jesus as their savior, meaning that Jesus has wiped away the guilt and the punishment that dealt with sin. He has paid the price. As we say, he paid a debt he didn't owe, and I owed a debt I could not pay. But Jesus paid that debt. And we know what it means for our sins to be canceled for the debt to be completely paid. But that is just the beginning of a Christian life. That is just the start. The Bible says that's an infant or a little child, that their sins are forgiven. But in Philippians 1, 6, one of my favorite verses, it says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
And we are all very clear that it was Jesus who began the good work in us, that it was Jesus who forgave us for our sins, who set us into a new life. And the same Jesus who began it perfects it. The same Jesus who began it perfects it, it says in Philippians 1.6. And then in Galatians 3, 2 and 3, Paul is talking to the Galatians about their adherence to the law. And he is talking to them and he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And these rhetorical questions that Paul is asking are the very things that the enemy tempts us with. After we meet the Lord, the enemy often comes in and says, okay, well now it's up to you to be the exemplary Christian. It's up to you to figure out how to get all these things straightened in your life. It's up to you to have the Christian virtues. Well, Christians should be loving and kind and like Jesus, and it's up to you to make that happen. And you'll always hear the enemy pointing at you because he is the accuser of the brethren. And he will come in with an oppression saying, you can't make these things happen. You are unable to do this on your own. And when the Bible talks about the flesh, my simplest rendering of the flesh is I can do it. That's the flesh. And what he's saying here is, don't you recognize that when you were called, that the Holy Spirit came and provided the power. The Holy Spirit came and started you off, and now are you gonna leave the Holy Spirit and think that you can become perfected of your flesh? And the answer to that is no. It's going to be the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who began that good work in us and finishes it. And a great verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. This is an incredible thing, because he starts talking and he says, may the God of peace, our God, sanctify you, through and through, your spirit, soul, and body, everything about you. If we took John Holt and put him up on the wall there and we took away his body, there would still be his soul. If we took away his soul, there'd still be his spirit. We are made of spirit, soul, and body. And the Bible says, may God himself sanctify or purify or move to the image of Christ, your spirit, soul, and body. And then he finishes it by saying, I want you to note faithful, is he who has called you, and he will do it. Who does it? He does it. God receives the glory because he starts the good thing, he finishes the good thing, and faithful is he who calls you. I highly recommend getting six verses in your mind that say God is faithful. Because Deborah, one of the first things that the enemy does is he comes in to question the faithfulness of God. And the enemy will just be around the corner saying, well, the first thing he said was, is it really true what God has said? That's what he said to Eve. Is it really true what God has said? And that's what he says to us all the time, trying to sow a doubt about the faithfulness of God. Now, in my life, I hate to tell you, but I have been a, a, a heavy reader of my circumstances rather than the faithfulness of God. 
And when my circumstances go the wrong way, I call out to God and say, what's up here? This wasn't supposed to happen this way. Um, I was so glad to see Deborah last week. She came to church and I wanted to come and, and spend time with her and I had gotten called to CDC to deal with an emergency. Well, I would say in the last 10 years, I've not been called to CDC on a Sunday to deal with an emergency. Here, Deborah was visiting and I had to peel off and go, well, I got in the car and said, Lord, that's not my plan. And he said, well, I'm not asking you for your plan. I'm asking you to walk in my plan. Do you see, the, the human tendency is to figure out what we want to do and to ask God to bless it. God's tendency is to say, I have works prepared for you from the foundation of the world and I want you to walk in them. But I'm very attuned to my plans. So one big thing in the Christian life is to recognize God is faithful. He knows how to lead, he knows how to sow, he knows how to do all the things that we need. And he is faithful to do it. Great verse in Thessalonians. And then Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So just like Andy's prayer, the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, I'm, I often note that the enemy wants to get even the name of Jesus removed from conversation. You'll find it. People don't want to say Jesus. They want to say an amorphous thing like God. They don't, but the name of Jesus has power. The name of Jesus brings to us the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form, just, ex, just exactly the man who walked on the earth, both the Son of Man and the Son of God. And the enemy, when he comes into the church, I was listening to a testimony that uh, was on YouTube. There was a really good testimony. And I may have shared it in this group before. You, you have to bear with repeats if you come here, Shirley, because I can't remember all the things that I say. But this guy had given his life over to Satan in a real way. And he had just met Satan and said, okay, you can have my life, but I want power. And he was a very adamant Satan worshiper, and he had power. And Satan gave him a limited amount of power, but like most things that go on this, Satan lures you in. And his testimony was, I had power for a time, and then I didn't have as much power. And then it was like Satan had me on a rubber band. I would walk out a little bit and he would just snap me back. And he said, I now realized that he had lured me in, and now the thing I was lured in with I no longer had, but somehow he had me. But God was gracious to this guy and he actually went into a terrible situation in life, was homeless in the street, walked into a church, and in one church service, the Lord just broke him free, and he's become a tremendous evangelist. But the way he evangelizes might be a little bit different than the way you and I would approach things. And so he'll go up to people and say, well, do you have Jesus in your heart? And they will say something, whatever they'll respond. Well, I don't believe in Jesus, or something like that, or something like this. And he says, well, um, do you believe in demons? And whatever the person says, well, I don't know if I believe in demons or not, or something. And he said, well, if you don't know if you believe in demons, do you mind if I pray that you be delivered from demons? And then the person will say, well, I don't know, probably so, you can pray that, and then he'll just pray. And this particular thing he was sharing about this guy was the guy was just physically overthrown as the demon was coming out, and he just threw up all over the grass, and he was just delivered of enormous things. 
and he ended up going out and burning all these things he had to do with the New Age movement, and it was just a tremendous thing, but this is the way this guy approaches street evangelism. Do you know Jesus? Do you know demons? Well, how about if I pray to get rid of demons? That's his approach. Now, I have to say, Alexis, I have never used that approach. That is a different approach than I have ever used, but this guy is incredibly aware of the things, and what he said that I wanted to emphasize to you was he was a Sunday school teacher. And he went to teach in Sunday school the adolescents because he wanted to spread anything that would diminish the name of Jesus. So if he got people in the church doing religious things not centered on Jesus, he had effectively diminished the name of Jesus in the church. So he was a Sunday school teacher, an avid worshiper of Satan. Not something that I was thinking about. But you have to be careful in the church because people will, the wording of things will take Jesus out of the center. Uh, I'll mention to you all before, I was at a meeting and somebody said, the most important thing for us to emphasize is church vitality. Well, there is no church vitality if there's no Jesus. Every good and perfect thing centers on him. But we cannot be sitting in what we're doing and let people take the name of Jesus out from the midst of the church because it removes Jesus. And Jesus is to be exalted to the highest place. And wherever he's not exalted to the highest place, he will work within Christians to pull and change that. So I, the one thing that bothers me some is when people say, well, I'm in the middle of my walk of faith. Well, you're in the middle of your walk of faith in Jesus. Don't leave Jesus out of it. Because Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. And he's the one that's guiding you in a walk of faith and making a walk of faith happen. Sometimes a walk of faith is used as a term implying I'm getting my Christian life together, getting all my priority Christian things to do, and so I'm a good Christian. And that's kind of the walk of faith. And all those things leave out Jesus. A walk of faith is giving our life to God, to Jesus, and, and walking with him as the Son walked with the Father. And Jesus said, I don't do anything except I see the Father do it. And we're to be so close to Jesus that we don't do things except what we see of Jesus. It's a very personal, not a set of principles. It's personal. It's a personal relationship. Jesus didn't say, Jesus said, I see the Father. The Father dwells in me. So Hebrews 12, 2 says he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He provides the growth. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. When we behold the Lord in a way we don't understand, just beholding the Lord transforms us into his image. And you might say, well, how does that work? I don't know how that works, but it does work. I'm not dead sure about the nuclear fusion equations on the sun, but I definitely enjoy the sun's light and I enjoy the sun's heat. The scripture says, as we behold his glory, we are changed into his image by his action. And Paul was very clear on this because the church really quickly began to split out into groups. Um, you know, it seems like today people form denominations. Well, back in the early church, they were just beginning to form denominations. And Paul wrote to him and said, I'm not happy with this where one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Peter, and another says, I follow Apollos. And, and it's really interesting because in 1 Corinthians he says, because that nature is in you to say, I follow a certain person, 
from that one characteristic, I know that you're an infant in Christ because you think that way. Because only infants in Christ put a man or a woman as a person that they follow rather than Jesus. And so that, by that one characteristic, I know that you're an infant in Christ. Very interesting thing to read. But, Paul, but the, what he said was, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but in all those things, God was causing the growth. And then in Colossians 2.19, such a great verse, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So in this description of the church, in Colossians 2, it says that Jesus is the head of the church, and the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. Um, some of you all know Erskine Holt and one thing that uh, was Erskine shared one time was it was such a tremendous thing that, that Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. It's on the Lord's shoulders to build his church. He is the builder. All glory goes to him. No glory goes to us. We're to abide in him and he receives the glory. And at first you might go, well, I don't like that. I actually did some things. I'd like some people to stand up and recognize me. That's fine, just bring that before the Lord because the Lord will work on our hearts where it really doesn't matter what people say at all. Now, that's a pretty strong thing to say, but it didn't matter to Jesus, and we're being transformed into that image. So the, the last verse on this that God causes the growth is 1 Corinthians 1.30. And if you're listening to me talk very much, you're going to hear me say this verse 15 times. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became unto us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So the Bible says that Jesus became unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Well, this is an interesting set of things because if this wasn't what Jesus became, these are things that we seek after. You always get people go, well, I really want to understand that. How is it that God is fair and God still allowed this to happen? How could there be pain in the world? Why didn't God just make creation so there's no pain and yet all the other things work out? We have all these things that we want to know about wisdom. Now, I just want to mention two things on wisdom. First of all, most of our wisdom is wisdom that you can transcribe on paper. You can write it down with words and we call that wisdom. That's a kind of wisdom, but that's actually a shallow wisdom. There's a wisdom beyond what you can transcribe on paper. This verse says, Jesus was made unto us wisdom. Jesus, the Son of God, was made unto us wisdom. Now, he is beyond what can be written on a piece of paper. Do you hear me? But he was made unto us wisdom. It's the same thing as when John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Well, the disciples kept asking Jesus things like, tell us the truth. And Jesus answered, I am the truth. Now, do you see how that supersedes even the way we think about wisdom? But Jesus is wisdom. Now, because we can't totally grab that in two seconds has nothing to do with its validity. 
Jesus is wisdom. The second thing he said was that he was made unto us righteousness. Now, fortunately, we've had plenty of good teaching on being saved and our sins being forgiven so that we know it was the righteousness of Jesus that took the place of my lack of righteousness. And his righteousness is what God looks at when he sees me. And that's why God calls me close to him. Why I can enter into the Holy of Holies through the split veil because of the righteousness of Jesus. So that's, that's one we've got down pretty good, I hope. But the next one, he says, after righteousness is sanctification. So sanctification is one of these cool words. You know, sanctification. You don't, you don't hear people, you know, getting on the um, Tuesday night news going, all right, we have a breaking news story on sanctification. You know, that's pretty much only in the church. Don't you think, Alexis? I think so. Sanctification is kind of a church word, like sin. Very often, very, very rare do you hear a... a TV announcers say, let me just tell you about how many sins broke out in the city today. You know, you don't hear that. Okay? Sanctification is moving from being an infant in Christ to the fullness of the stature of Christ. We would call that growth in Jesus. It, the word used in the Bible uses several words, but I like to use the word sanctification. The reason that I'm mentioning this is it says Jesus was made unto us sanctification. Jesus himself is our growth from an infant to the fullness of his stature. And we go, that is just, it's almost too good to be true. But it, many, many things in the Lord sound too good to be true. And my first question to that was, how? How is he my sanctification? I would like the 12-step method so I can monitor success, spot weak points, do a gap analysis, and have a strategic plan that addresses the issues. Are you hearing me? I hope none of those words meant anything to you, but maybe they did. I want to be in control is what I'm saying. It's okay, Jesus, for you to say it goes this way, but hand it over to me. I'm going to figure out the schedule, how we're going to do it, how I'm going to grow, whether I'm going to forgive my sister-in-law who I don't like, whether I can skip that step and go to the next step. I'm going to figure those things out. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus was made unto us sanctification. And we spent many lessons talking about how God's call was for us to abide in him, for how the work of believing, the work of believing in John 6, the work of a believer is to believe in Jesus. That's the, to do the works of God, it's to believe in Jesus. And when we do that, these other things happen. These other things happen because sanctification is in Christ. No one is going to go to heaven and say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I sure hope you were impressed with what I did after you saved me. Were you impressed, Jesus? There's not going to be any of this, Jesus, were you impressed. There could be a lot of hugging, I'll give you that. There'll be a lot of hugging, and there'll be tremendous thanksgiving towards the Lord, but there will be none of this, Jesus, were you impressed with what I did? Because we're gonna see him as he is, and we're gonna recognize Surely that every good thing that we did was energized by him. And it was just by opening up the gate that th those good things happened. So we have a water tower in DeKalb County. We probably have several. So water is sitting up there at some height. And how do we get water? Well, you might say you turn on, you go to the faucet. And if I was to ask Celia, I'd say, well, Celia, did you get the water? Oh, yeah, I got the water. I went over to the faucet and I turned the handle and the water came out. It was me that got the water. Well, we would say to Celia, well, you kind of opened the sluice gate, but somebody put that water up really high so we would flow down, and all you did was open it up so it could flow in. 
That's our walk with the Lord. The Lord has everything already done. That's what it means on the cross when he says it is finished. But we are in charge of opening the sluice gates. We are in charge of opening the door saying, Jesus, come into this. When we have sin in our life, Jesus is saying, I can totally rectify it. But he will not totally rectify it if we do not invite him. But once we invite him, he does the rest. And this is why it says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And the Lord put this on my heart heavy, that the Lord does not stand out in the hallway saying, Come out and find me. He doesn't do that. He's knocking on the door. And this was written to the church at Laodicea, to believers, not unbelievers, but to believers. And he said, I'm standing at the door and knock. Open the door and I will come in. And I've shared my testimony before about how I met the Lord, but I had a terribly weak prayer of faith that is not even a, something that should be shared. But when I got to a certain place in my life, I called out to the Lord and said, my life is like bubble gum in hair. This is my, these are the words. And if you think you can do something about it, you're welcome to try. That's how I met Jesus. Well, how much did I open that door? Very little. Very little. And what did Jesus do? He came plowing on through, and he changed everything. How did Jesus take a life that was like gum and hair and straighten it out? I don't know how. Uh, we're not experts on the how, I just know he did it. And he knows how to do it. And the Bible says that he was made unto us sanctification. Jesus was made unto us the growth from an infant to a mature Christian, the fullness of the stature of Christ. He's the one that empowers it. If we came into somebody's kitchen, if I went to Kathy's house, which I did the other day, and she had a KitchenAid mixer sitting there, and she said, I can't quite get this to work. Used to work, sometimes it works, but I can't quite get it to work. And I look over there and it's unplugged. And I said, well, I would really suggest plugging it in. She goes, well, I plug it in sometimes. Sometimes I wave it near the plug. And, uh, you know, but who cares about plugging it in? I just want it to work. Well, we would have a conversation and say, well, the power is not going to flow unless you're plugged in. And you can't wave it near. You've got to plug in and make a good contact. That's us and Jesus. Often we live our lives by waving our plug near Jesus and comparing ourselves to other people who are waving their plug near Jesus. Jesus is calling us to dive all the way in, make the firm connection, stay connected, stay there, and then suddenly power and things happen. Now just think about that KitchenAid mixer unplugged. It's cute, it's nice, it's pretty, it's good to look at, but it doesn't function. But once you plug it in, things begin to happen that could never happen had it not been plugged in. That's the way we are with Jesus. When we plug into Jesus in ways we don't understand, things begin to happen. Now we have a little understanding of an electric motor, but most of us couldn't put together, you know, a KitchenAid mixer if we had to. Lots of good things happen when Jesus comes in. So I'm going to read one verse on Jesus will strengthen us because I don't want to run out of time. And then I'm going to move to Matthew 13. The first that is, well, two verses. One is Philippians 4.13, which we constantly quote, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we've talked about this before, that the mystery of this fellowship is that I'm involved and Jesus is involved, but the strength 
comes from Jesus. The things that I do are strengthened through Jesus, not strengthened through me. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Sometimes people feel frustration in life and the one thing that they feel in that frustration is that they are not protected from the evil one, that the enemy has them. He pushes them down and he pushes them down further. And I'm not really advocating just watch YouTube all the time, but in the last few months I've been watching some YouTube and you're experiencing some of that. There are some great testimonies that are on YouTube. There are people that have been messed up in life and God just grabbed them and he just did it out of his mercy and they have incredible stories. But the Bible says that God will protect you from the evil one. We're to know him, we're to cast him out, we're to push him away. He's a bothersome person who's around here, but God will protect us from it. Now, when Jesus then, so all that is to say, God is the source of this growth. We're talking about the mystery of growing in Jesus. Jesus provides the energy for that growth. He himself is the source of that growth. He is faithful to grow us. He keeps the enemy off our back and he strengthens us. Okay, that's what we want to take from those, verse, those verses so far. But when Jesus talked about things, he talked about what happens when the word comes to you. What happens when God interacts with you and puts the word in your heart? And this parable is in Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, there are two parables of the sower. We're going to do the first one. So the first one is when, when the seed is sown, the seed is the word of God, and we're the ground. The second parable of the sower is that Jesus is sowing seed, and we're the seed, and the ground is the world. And I want to emphasize that because that's, that parable is very important because Jesus takes each one of us and sows us in the places. I had something happen at CDC. I don't want to mention too many of these things, but I got delayed one day and I had to stay way too long doing something and it was kind of somebody else's fault and it was about, oh, five of seven and I was leaving to come home and I went out to the parking lot and it was me and one other car still there. And while I was there, this other car, the driver of this other car comes out and he's a, he was another person who should have left at five o'clock, but it was five minutes till seven. Now, the first thing that the Lord did to me right when I went there was, he, he was like joking with me. He says, it's getting harder and harder to weave paths together so I can get you to talk to the right people. But I knew right then God had done that for me to see this person right in that 10 second interval. And without going over things, it turned out to be a very important conversation, which never would have happened otherwise, and I didn't even know it needed to happen. But God delayed this guy and delayed me so we could meet at 5 to 7 in the parking lot. However, Deborah, my heart at about 6.30 was, God, I need to be home. Why is all this bad stuff happening to me delaying? You see all this faith? I didn't have very much faith at all. I was very much surely into my circumstances and saying, it's time for me to be home. How am I going to explain to Helen that I'm coming home this late? That's my thoughts. Instead of relying on these verses, which says, don't you know God's faithful? Why is it so hard for you to grab hold that God's faithful? One reason it's hard for me is because I'm a big interpreter of my circumstances. And I judge the faithfulness of God by my circumstances, which is not the way to do it. And that's a growing place for me. So Jesus knows how to sow us into the world. He knows how to get us places at five till seven when we would normally be there at five after five. He knows how to do that. 
He knows how to do these, and he's active in doing that. But the first sower parable is what we're going to talk about. So Matthew 13, 3 through 8, it says, And Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell by the road, and the birds came and ate them, and others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then bouncing to verse 18 through 23, he explains the parable, saying, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. It comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So if we take a look at these in pieces, we first have the word of the kingdom, that is the word of Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. That's the word of the kingdom of God. When they hear that word, some people simply just don't respond. Uh, a bad way of not responding is saying, I'm going to put that over here, I'll get to it later. We just let it bounce off. We don't take action on it. We just don't respond. The Bible says the enemy is not passive about that. But the enemy comes in and tries to remove that word from us, lest we respond. So he tries to take it away from our heart. We're not, we don't want to be in that category. But the second category, it says that this is the person who receives with joy and when affliction or persecution arises on account of the word, then he stumbles. Now the Bible doesn't say if persecution arises, it says when. So when you first hear the good news about Jesus, it is tremendously good news. And sometimes you walk away thinking, I'm never gonna have a problem. I'm never gonna stub my toe. I'm never going to have three exams on the same day. I'm never going to have a teacher who I can't understand speak to me. I'm never going to have someone send me a letter saying that you have been charged with some crime I've never done. I'm never going to have these things because I just accepted Jesus. I I've been, I'm now immune from difficulties in life. Or everybody seeing that I've accepted Jesus is going to look at me and say, Bill, what a marvelous person. You look really good. You must have accepted Jesus. That's a great thing to happen in your life, Bill. Yet that's how we think it's going to go. But the enemy who is roaming around and who is trying to, to uh, oppress us and who is trying to accuse us, he is going to have people come our way that persecute us because we've accepted Jesus. And sometimes it's hard to grab, but it definitely happens. Um, Miguel Escobar told me a story that was very interesting that, but was very heartening to me in terms of how faithful the Lord is, but also in interpreting circumstances and persecutions and difficulties that come. 
and he was ministering in a church and he was set to go there at the 11 o'clock service. And he got up and he had everything ready, but then before he could leave, two things happened. And the first thing is that he got an emergency phone call and they said, you've got to go over and see this lady. And this lady is in a house and she's roaming around with a big butcher knife. And she is saying things like she's out of her mind and nobody can do anything and nobody can go in the house and you've got to go see her. Okay, so surely maybe not the number one thing you think you're going to do before you're talking at 11 o'clock is to visit a lady roaming around saying wild things with a big butcher knife in her hand. You might say to yourself, God, handle that another way. I've got to go minister at 11 o'clock. Can you see that? But Miguel didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. But before he could get out the door to go help that lady, which he felt like he might just have just enough time to help the lady before it still make the 11 o'clock service, some Jehovah's Witnesses came to his door. And he didn't feel like he could just say, leave them. And so he spoke to the Jehovah's Witnesses for a little bit, tried to lead them to the Lord, try to talk about Jesus and say, you know, you've got to get Jesus straight. No matter what else you believe, it's not going to work until you get Jesus straight. And if you've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses, you know they have a whole different idea of Jesus than the scripture present. And so he sat there, but they were, it was, an, it was a difficult conversation. He finished that, ran over to the lady's house. He knocked on the door at the lady's house. Now, I just want you to think, what would you have done? Would you have knocked on the door of a house with a woman going around with a butcher knife saying wild things? I just want to let you know, I would not have done that. But the Lord engaged him to do that. The lady opened the door. True enough, she had a butcher's knife. And the first thing she said to him was, how did you like those Jehovah's Witnesses I sent to your house? The first thing she said was a demon. And so he went in, cast the demon out of the lady. It was really amazing. I mean, he just ministered on the spot, cast the demon out of the lady, got things straightened out, made it to the church, was a little bit late, but got to deliver his message. But you see, the enemy will throw persecutions and difficulties in our path, but God, so wonderful is he, he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. But we do need to be recognizing that things are going to get thrown at us so that the glory of God can be visible. One of the best witnesses for Christians in this world is how they deal with difficulties. Because the world does not deal with difficulties well at all. Um, just If we just went into profanity, <laughs> I mean, when rough things happen to people, just what they say out of their mouth, just the way people deal with difficulties, is starkly different between people who love Jesus and people who don't know Jesus. And as we're to be lights in the world, one of the biggest lights we can be is when difficulty comes our way, we regard Jesus as surpassingly more wonderful and great and marvelous and in control and powerful compared to anything that we're dealing with down here. And because we know Jesus that way, other people go, you're connected with something I have no idea about. What is it that you're connected with? And that's what changes them. But too often, we'll believe the word of the enemy and say, this isn't working out right. You became a Christian, and now your social connections are not going out with you. And people are saying, if you don't go out and get drunk, you're not my friend. 
And if you don't go out and do these things that you used to do, you think you're holier than thou. And who do you think you are? And Jesus is just a, something some people made up anyway because they don't have the, the guts to face the world, so they lean on something they can't see. And you're believing in something stupid like that? Well, that's what you hear. That's what you get. But you see, Jesus is so wonderful compared to all that stuff, we can just go, okay, well, I see that you see it differently. But I'd like you to meet the one I met. And when you meet him, you'll know him the way I do. And you'll see he's absolutely wonderful. And he changes everything in life. And he's altogether deserving of, my, of me following him and loving and adoring him. Now, Paul said a verse, and again, I keep saying things and say these are in my top 10. I probably have said that about 50 verses, but this is a great verse. I heartily recommend getting it into your heart. It's in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, where Jesus said, where Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them to be rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And that is the vision and the fellowship that we are to have, just like Paul, which says, I've lost everything, and I don't count it as anything but garbage, because I have the surpassing, greatness of knowing Jesus my Lord now if you don't have surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and you're connected in quote the Christian religion that's devoid of Jesus you can't say anything like that all you can do is try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and say I've got to adhere to my principles of living I'm going to adhere to it I can't say to someone I haven't adhered to my principles of living and my principles of living are these things, and they may touch the church or not touch the church. There might be a dash of Jesus in there, but there might not be. You know, you, try to be, you, you just cannot imagine how difficult it is for the Lord to look at people who say they love him, and they don't even talk to him. But they dictate to him and just say, God, you need to do that. God, you need to do this. And they don't talk to him. You know, Helen's not here this morning for a very good reason, but if I was just to adopt that attitude with Helen, we would not have very much of a marriage. I think it's fair to say we would have a zero marriage. What do you think, Hope? I think a zero marriage would be it. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. I just want to tell you what to do. I, I think that would last hmm, 15 minutes in my house. Maybe not five minutes. That would not work. But we do it to God all the time. I'm always amused by how we pray to God as if he doesn't know what's going on. Lord, look what's happened. The Lord knows what's happened. He knows every hair on your head. Now, Bill, you and I are a little bit lower on that, but in general, we're running over 100,000 hairs on every head. Andy's got a good 110,000. He knows every hair. He's got every hair number. When Andy washes his hair, he goes LP762, out. RN428, out. He knows when every hair leaves. He knows that kind of detail. He knows they're still good to pray and unload your heart. Don't, don't hold it in. But we need to recognize we're not informing God and he could just stop and say, oh, let me give you a little more detail on that and blow us out with what he knows because he's intimately involved. 
But Paul had reached a place where he said, look, it's Jesus, and after Jesus, it's Jesus, and then after Jesus, it's Jesus. And all these other things are little. These other things are little. I had, uh, you know, I've had a situation in my life where I needed to get up and talk in front of a group of people, and I was kind of helping in the nursery, and I was going to talk maybe 350 people or so. And at the time, I really only had one good suit. This won't mean anything to women, but guys can get in this place. I just had one suit. And I was helping in the nursery a little bit, and that's a joke because I don't really know how to help in the nursery. But I was holding this little kid, and this little kid had had a bottle and stuff, and they said, well, could you burp the kid? And I said, it can't be that hard. And so I held the kid right here, you know, on my chest, and just tapping really loudly. I'd seen it done many times. And all of a sudden, there was this burp, and I went, oh, I did it. I got the burp. And it was a strange feeling because I suddenly felt warmth going down the back of my coat. And uh, I had burped the kid all right. I had brought up probably a third of that milk and it had gone all the way down the back of my suit coat, my only suit coat, which I don't, I don't want to get too gross, but baby burp doesn't smell too good either. You can't just kind of leave it around. And I was sitting there and I was going, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to. So I took this off and I went and gave the talk or whatever I did without my suit coat and I didn't smell too good, okay? Because I couldn't fix it. I had 10 minutes, you know, to make it work. Does that sound like a big deal? At the moment, that can seem like a big deal. Is that a big deal? That's not a big deal. It's just, I had upchuck on my suit coat. Sorry, take it off, let's go, okay? But we get things in our life. I don't like flat tires. I call out to the Lord if I have a flat tire and go, there can't be any eternal purpose for me to have a flat tire. Can't you just fix this out? We call out to God on those things. We don't know what's an eternal purpose or not. We keep telling God, this is what it is. That's just like that day where I was delayed and delayed and delayed and then met the guy in the parking lot. But Jesus is exalted above all things. And if it comes in front of us, it comes in front of Jesus. Tremendous verse, Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But Mark 7, 9 is another good verse on this because the social pressure that people come under is really highlighted here. And in Mark 7, 9, Jesus said, He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's being very strict with them. And he says, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. You're experts at setting aside God's commandment to keep your tradition. And the danger that we face is that our culture comes in on us from every side, and our culture has expectations on how you're going to do things, and what's okay, and what's politically correct, and what you can do here. And if we allow our culture to come in and we just say, well, the traditions that we do, we're going to let those supplant the commandment of God. Then Jesus said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, because that's what you do. You're experts at that. That's what you do. But we have tremendous pressure that way. And things come in and, and you, you deal with that in life. But Jesus said, I want you to know this is coming. He said, I want you to know that this is a mistake that was made in the early church. People let their cultural traditions supplant God in his way. And that's a pressure that comes in on us. And then in John 5, 44, Jesus just flatly said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory which comes from the one and only God? See, if our heart is not to please the one and only God, but we take a third of our heart and we say, I want to make sure I please other people and that I'm receiving glory from other people, we're gonna have a problem. He says, your heart has got to be to glorify God. 
Now see, God's got bigger things in mind. There's a great guy, this is on YouTube as well, but Andreas Bessoni is on YouTube, and this guy is really, really good evangelist. His last name spelled B-I-S-O-N-N-I, really good, he goes a bunch of places. And the Lord has just touched him in, you know, in a whole bunch of his services. I would say three, 400 people are slain in the spirit in 30 seconds. You know, just tremendous move of God's spirit. He preaches the clear gospel. He does not go away from scripture. He's just very clear on what he preaches. But what, this, but what he's talking about and what is so important from the Lord is that we're not seeking to say everybody else and just say, um, you know, does this, is this okay with you? And is this okay with this? But that our hearts are looking to the Lord, that the Lord said the things he does, we're going to do greater things than that. Well, the culture of our world and the culture of religion is, that's too much to expect. You can't think you're gonna walk around Alexis and do greater things than Jesus did. That's just hyperbole. That's not what Jesus said. He said that those come after me will do these things. <clears throat> now, when we try to extrapolate from the way we're walking right now, that seems too far out. But when you get close to the Lord, these things begin to fall into place. And all of a sudden you can see, I do love him. I love him 10 times more than I loved him six months ago. And I didn't know you could love him 10 times more. And the spirit of God talks to me clearer. And where it used to be vague, now his voice is clearer. And yes, if he asked me to go pray for that person, I would know it was him. And yes, I would do it because it is him. And I've gone beyond the place of saying, it's God, but I'm going to consider what would be the consequences to me of following God. I'm now beyond that. And the only thing that I consider is, is it God? And if it is God, I'm going to do it. If it takes all my money, that's it. One of the very first things as Christians we need to do is to give the Lord all our money. And I'm not saying write a check for it and send it to somebody, but you need to take your heart, and I need to take my heart, and say to the Lord, every dollar I have is your dollar, including my 401k plan. Everything is yours. And if you want me to give it over here to somewhere, I'm handing away your money. And if, we, if that's a place in our heart that we've held back, the Lord will touch that. And someone says, you can't just give him all your money, you'll be poor. You can't be poor and have the almighty God. Those things don't go together. And so he, he knows how to deal with that. We're gonna talk about that in just a second. Um, there were two other verses that were really good on this. Mark 8, 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And you know the text of that story, and you know that Peter was actually trying to say, I don't want you to leave us. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Well, you know, when I first read that, I said, that's awful harsh. Peter's been a really good guy. You know, he's the guy that walked on the water. He did all these things. Peter's been a good guy. Well, you called him Satan? I mean, do you see? Oh, if I was to, you know, someone was to walk up to me, if Hope was to walk up to me and, and I said something like, you know, something that Hope would do, and Hope turned to me and said, get behind me, Satan, it could damage our relationship. Do you know what I'm saying? But Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan, and what was it that was satanic about it? He said that because you are setting your mind on man's interests, not God's. See, we don't think of things like that. We don't think of God being so absolutely holy 
that to set your mind on something else is just absolutely wrong to do, but God looks at it that way. The same guy, Andre Bassoni, went to minister in uh, Huntsville, Alabama at a prison, and he went to do it, and, and he accepted it was a maximum security prison. You know, these are the really, really lifetime people and very dangerous people, murderers and things like this. And he went in and the people came into the chapel, which was a nice chapel. And he got up and they said, you have 40 minutes to minister. And in this 40 minutes, you can minister, but at the end, they got to go back to their cell. And he was sharing the testimony. He goes, and you really want to stick to that 40 minutes because the last thing you want to do is to break the law while you're in prison. <laughs> you know, and he was just, so he was being really careful of that. Well, when he accepted, when he accepted the um, invitation, he called his friend and said, we can do this. We can go minister to these people. But then as he was driving over there, he said, I began to have thoughts of, what am I doing? I'm about to go into a maximum security prison where people have killed each other and they have no reason not to kill someone else because they're already in for a life imprisonment. What have I done? You, you know what I'm talking about. It's just the enemy bringing in the fear. It's bringing in, it's, it, Ken, it's the enemy coming in and saying, you're entering a situation out of your control. If you were rational, you would panic. And Jesus is saying, actually all situations are out of your control. That's what it really is. And I'm with you, so you should never panic. But that's not what Satan said. But he went on and did it. And so he went on into the prison, and he was ministering. He was kind of sharing as the video went. And he said, so at this point I was sharing. I didn't know what would happen. And so I made a call, and I said, if, if anybody wants to receive Jesus, then, then just you know, come out into the uh, aisle and bow down, and you know, we'll pray that you receive Jesus. All bunches of people came out to the aisle. And then they stood up and he said, if anybody wants to receive the fire of the Holy Spirit, then raise your hands and I'll pray for you that receive the fire. And all these people raised their hands. Well, on the video, it's a great video, on the video, he just prayed for the people here and all these prisoners just got slain in the spirit all the way down the aisle. Just whoop, whoop, just like dominoes, all the way down the aisle. But he turned around to go finish and just dismiss the thing because he was getting close to what? His 40 minutes. So he had to hurry back to get that. So he turned around to go up to the stage to finish his thing out. But the Holy Spirit had another idea. The Holy Spirit is so cool. The Holy Spirit is so cool. So he turned around to come back up here and the Holy Spirit slayed him in the spirit. And he couldn't move. And he was laying on top of these criminals. I mean, you can see it in the picture. He was on four guys laying on top. And he said, there wasn't anything to it. He said, I couldn't move. What was I to do? I just couldn't move. And then he said, he heard the Holy Spirit says, say in his ear, he said, I heard the Holy Spirit say, you are no different than these men. Now, do you see that? Now, I'm trying to make this point we do things in a culture and in the thinking where if you said, are you different than that criminal? I'd say, I'm different than that criminal. I didn't do those things. And God said, you are no different than those men for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you see? Gosh, I like that one. Can you tell I like that one? That was really, I, that was such a great thing for the Holy Spirit to do. And such a thing for me because this temptation that we've got to please others and things like this, this cultural thing comes in, is so different from Jesus, 
who looks at the person caught in the sin and says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you see that heart? That heart is so different than our culture. The heart of our culture is to put people into buckets and then condemn them for that bucket. You're a Republican. You're a Democrat. You're a such and such. You're a such and such. And because you're that, these are the bad things about your group. And I'm going to stand up and talk about it because other people need to hear how bad you are. That's our culture. Jesus is so different than that and called us to be a servant to everybody and to pray for our enemies. And you go, well, that's a good theory, but that's an aspirational goal. You can't pray for your enemies. Yes, you can. Jesus can change you so you pray for your enemies. And you love your enemies. He can do that. He is big. But the enemy at this level will come in and say, these social things are going to put it down, and your Christian thing just doesn't fit well enough with the way everybody lives in the 21st century. As if the 21st century is a special time. And that's what they say. You need to move into the modern age. Who wants to be in the modern age anyway? I don't know. But they make it sound like if you're not in the modern age, you're behind. But you see, Jesus is independent of time. He created time. I'm always amused that we put a man on the moon still thinking that the universe never started, but always was. In 1969, all scientists thought, not all, but most scientists thought the universe has just always been. It wasn't until 1970 that on the basis of the general theory of relativity that people figured out, oh my gosh, it has to have a beginning. But do you know there's a book in the Bible that says in the beginning God created the universe? You see, God put all that out there so that people who are very smart will have no excuse because God's written all this stuff beforehand and we're just understanding it more and more now. I especially love the verses in the Bible that say God created darkness. Well, we used to think darkness was absence of light. And now we know darkness is actually a dark matter energy and has to be created. But it says in Isaiah, I think it's 45.4, God created the darkness. Sitting right there in the scripture. So science is catching up. It's catching up. But God has put these things so no one can have an excuse. He lets you see the universe so that you cannot have an excuse. You know his divine nature and his power by what we see in nature. So these are important verses because we intend to say if socially we get in trouble and people persecute us and put us to the side, that's the first thing that squinches the word. And Jesus is saying that's going to be the first thing Satan tries to do is to get that in. And this is true with every word we receive of the kingdom. If you, when you understand how glorious Jesus is, whatever level you're at, the level below is not going to want you to be at that level. You can't stretch up and do that. In the Azusa Street Revival, they opened up a church based on speaking in tongues right next to the Azusa Street Revival. And people got together and go, we've not had speaking in tongues. And since we've not had speaking in tongues, we don't have a denomination that says speaking in tongues. So we're just going to go over here and say, there's a gift of God from the Holy Spirit, and it's speaking in tongues, and our church is going to be centered on letting this gift of the Holy Spirit blossom because we really haven't dealt with it before. Now, does that sound good? Some of that sounds good, but some of that is exalting something other than Jesus. And you can exalt religious things in place of Jesus and enter into religious bondage. And it's done all the time. Now, listen, this would be a hard word to hear, 
But some people exalt. We're going to go out and do things and do projects for our fellow man. And that is the heart of Christianity. And that is the substance of Christianity. And that is the totality of Christianity. And they reduce the church to a civic organization. Do you hear me? And it sounds like, well, helping your fellow man, that sounds like a good thing to do. And absolutely Christians do that. Jesus said to love God and to love your brother as yourself. But to take Jesus out, then what you're doing is literally of your flesh, going out to do things to show people, see, I'm someone who does these great things. You should respect me for how good a person I am. And that is not Jesus. I want to be clear on this. If you follow the Lord, you will be helping other people. But Jesus helped people. I mean, just think about Peter and John. When he goes, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You want to help somebody? You take somebody who can't walk and help them walk. This is incredible what the Lord will do. The Lord wants us to help other people, but the enemy sows, do it of your flesh. Do it so other people will say good things about you. And then invokes the name of the church to cover it all over. And this is rampant. And this is rampant. And if you say anything about it, someone's going to come up to you and they're going to say, Andy, are you against helping the underprivileged? What's wrong with you? And you have to be able to say, I actually am so for helping the underprivileged, you can't imagine it. But I want to help the underprivileged with that which eternally helps them and that which helps them now in their situation. And there is no eternal gift if, you don't be, if you're not bringing Jesus to those people. There is no eternal gift. Everything else is transitory. But the, see how slick it sounds when the enemy just kind of cushions it under helping other people? So I, that can be a tricky one. I hope I explained that well enough. I'm almost done here. So the, the, second, the next area is the chokers. Okay, these are things that choke the word. And I want to emphasize this, Ken, because they don't grab it and just snuff it out. They grab it in little steps and just choke it. And the first is the worries of the world. And so the worries of the world, Jesus said the tremendous verse in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. And I'm not going to read it all, but you know it. It's like looking at the birds of the air, looking at the lilies of the field, that the Lord takes care of them. And Jesus then said, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Notice that Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, not seek his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. He says, and all these things will add unto you. For many years in my life, I sought his kingdom, I sought Jesus to be the king, but not Jesus to be first and be the king. In other words, I liked the kingship of Jesus when it matched my thoughts, and we went with that. But if Jesus said, time for you to go to Borneo, I'd go, well, there's a lot of good reasons I can't go to Borneo. Do you see? I had, I had veto power. So he wasn't really the king, but I called him the king. But he wasn't really the king. And so what he's saying here is you've got to seek first the kingdom and then these things happen. When Jesus sent out the 70 and came back, he said, he had sent the 70 out and he said, don't take anything extra. Don't even take a coin pouch. Don't take extra changes of clothes. 
just go as you are. And when they came back, he asked them, and he said, did you lack any good thing? And they said, no. But they started with nothing and ended up with nothing, and in the middle, they lacked no good thing. Well, if you're a planner or a controller, you'd go, whoa, that, you can't do that. You can't do that because that's just unbelievable. How could you do that? But Jesus wanted to let them know that if you put God first in ways you don't understand, and in ways you don't foresee, God will provide. If you want to read about, I um, can't remember his first name, Mueller in England. What was his first name? George. George, that's right, George Mueller. I want to call him John, George Mueller. Not only did George Mueller run an orphanage with the Lord providing, he refused to ask for donations from anybody. He never sent a flyer out saying, we really need food to feed these orphans. Never did it. And Charles Dickens went by and visited George Mueller's orphanage because there was a big concern that all these people were living in these substandard conditions. And he came out and said, absolutely not. This is a great place. And, you know, Dickens wrote a lot about orphans and things like this. But this was a man who took God at his word and opened the orphanage. That's where God led him. And the details were up to God. And he did it. Because when, but God has got to be first. Now, a great thing in this is God will let events happen to help you usher him into first. <laughs> you know, uh, what are we at? I think last fall, we had a move in the stock market that was not kind. It went really the wrong way for a long time. And if you were following your stocks, I don't know if you were or not, but you would go, what is going on? And I don't want this to all happen. And the Lord will, the Lord will bring to you and bring to your heart, brought to my heart. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? These are really small, Jim. Do you trust me? Do you think I'm faithful? And I would still read the circumstances and go, I trust you. I, I would just like to have this assurance. Would you make the stock market go up? Do you see? And we have a lot of, a lot of conditions like that in our life. But he's saying, he's saying that God, if he's put first, he absolutely knows how to cover this stuff. Now the enemy comes in and says, Ken, if you are a responsible adult, part of being a responsible adult is worrying. If you're not worrying, you're not being responsible. As a matter of fact, surely if you're not worrying, you have your head in the sand. Because let me tell you the things you should be worried about. And then he has this long list. And you could easily get a list. I could talk to each one of you in this room and just from your family relations, you could give me a dozen worries. Just from that, having nothing to do with finances or future, just what's going to happen here? I don't know how this is going to turn out. And the enemy makes worrying seems like, seem like an adult responsible exercise. Are you with me? He glorifies worrying. <coughs> if Christians didn't worry, they would be so different from non-Christians, they would be 200 watt light bulbs. They would be glowing Jesus everywhere just if they didn't worry. Just if they didn't worry. And Jesus means for us not to worry. It's big. It's a big thing. Part of accepting Jesus as king is saying to him, Lord, you have my circumstances, my resources, my everything, and I trust you. You are faithful. Now imagine we went out to the parking lot out here, and let's just say Christian had bought a brand new BMW. Christian does this every other year, don't you, Christian? Buy a brand new BMW. And he said, we're going to give you all some rides in this. And so he took Chibs and said, Chibs, 
Here, and let's just pretend Chibs had never seen a car. I know this is a hard story, but bear with me. So Chibs had never seen a car, and Christian brought up this first car, it was BMW, and said, Chibs, get on in. I'm going to show you how much better this car is than walking. So Chibs, she's a little cautious. And so she goes, well, you know, I don't know about this. This looks like a big beast. We don't know what it's going to do. So she decides that she's going to put, sit down in there and pull one leg in, but keep one leg on the outside that can stay on the pavement just in case something funny happens. And Christian goes, it, it doesn't really work very well that way. You've got to pull that leg in and shut the door. And then it's going to, you're going to see it. And, and Chip says, well, I hear you, but I'm going to keep the leg out there. So Christian drives around a little bit at three miles an hour, and after about five minutes, Chibs goes, well, it's nice, and it was a comfortable seat, but really it's just not that much better than walking. Do you hear me? Now, we would all look at that and go, Chibs, get with it, put your leg inside, you're in for something you have no idea about, and just get with it. That's God. God is saying, whatever you're keeping outside of him, bring it in it changes everything when you try to do a hybrid where you're walking with god and you're not walking with god it is terrible and it's going to hurt your leg rather than anything else and you're going to conclude it's really not that much better but if you'll take that part of your life and put it in the car all of a sudden you go to a place you couldn't perceive of walking you can't perceive of it and that's god so he's trying to say look you don't see how worries of the world can fall off your list, but I do. Because I'm going to so exalt myself inside of you, worries will just fade out. There's some really good grease cleaners like Windex Outdoor, uh, outdoor Windex Spray or something. But anyway, if you all know much about solvents, solvents can be good things because you can have, they have it on TV commercials. You have just junk up here and you spray this stuff and it just dissolves away. That's what Jesus does. He takes worries and he dissolves them away and then he wipes it clean and they're gone. The worries are gone. But the enemy exalts worries as a Christian thing to do, as an adult responsibility. And so the worries of this world are something that, that are absolutely pushed by Satan. And they choke. Because if I just asked you to think about your worry list this afternoon, you could do it for three hours and you'd come out incredibly discouraged. The second thing that I want to mention is that in the choking of the worries of the world, it's to say to Jesus, the important things already take more time than I have. I don't have time. I'm trying to be a good daughter, a good mother, a good granddaughter, a good this. I left out a Christmas present last year. I forgot my mother's birthday. I just don't have the time to make everything work. Jesus organizes time and makes time work. He is someone who can put time into, into the right order and get the right things done. I'm going to skip a couple of verses on that, but I do want to mention this one verse that is really good. In Psalm 73, the Bible talks about uh, somebody who was looking at how the wicked prospered in the world. And they said to the Lord, why is it that the wicked prosper? They do bad things, but they get more money. They get this, they get that. And I don't understand that. And then Psalm, in verse 16 through 20, concerning the prospering of the wicked, the verse says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, 
you cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. Now, the revelation of how could the wicked prosper was completely confusing until the person came where? Into the sanctuary of God. When you get close to the Lord, things look altogether different. And where before you're going, I don't see how and why and all this in it, all of a sudden, uh, there was another YouTube video where a guy gave a testimony and he was in bad shape. He was a drug addict and everything. And the Lord came to him and when the Lord came to him, he came and he bent his head forward and he said, I didn't know what was going on and all of a sudden I could see Jesus inside of me. He said, I could just see Jesus inside of me. Tremendous testimony. But he said, but I want to let you know I could see what Jesus saw and I could see the new creation. And he said, the new creation is perfect. And he went on and on. He goes, look, <laughs> there's nothing bad. It's absolutely perfect. It's where he's taking us to this new creation. And he didn't have it but for like four or five minutes. And then the Lord stepped back out of him. But he could just see it. Well, when we see in the Lord, when we're close to the Lord, all of a sudden we're going to go, oh, 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 oh. Because the Bible says then we're going to know even as we are known. But we can trust him for things that we don't know right now. But what, the way you view things has to do with how close you are to the Lord. And if you're in his sanctuary, then all of a sudden you can see things you could never see before. And in Psalm 91, 1 and 2, he says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. When you dwell in the secret place, your conversation with the Lord is, you are my refuge and my fortress, and you are the one that I trust in. But if you do not dwell in the secret place of the Most High, you go, God tell me how it's going to work so I can be reassured by my understanding of the plan. Do you hear me? And your ultimate rest and relaxation is your understanding of the plan rather than God is my fortress and my strength and my refuge. But when you dwell close to him, these other things fade away like that grease. And all of a sudden, the majesty and glory of the Lord is the thing. And you go, it's the Lord. And then someone says to you, of course, it's the Lord. Andy, we've been saying that for a long time. And Andy goes, no, it is the Lord. He is mighty and you glorify I'm, I'm running terribly out of time today, so I'm just going to take three verses on the last one that chokes. And that was the deceitfulness of riches. I think we're all clear on the deceitfulness of riches. From the time we're born, the enemy is always telling us if you had more money, you'd be happy. Uh, I love this conversation. A billionaire got on the radio and said, and I love this conversation, he says, anybody that tells you that if you have plenty of money, you'll be happy, does not have plenty of money. He was a billionaire, like with a B. He says, money does not make you happy. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, beware against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Life does not consist of having possessions. But if you watch television, they're gonna let you know there's a sale on, right after Black Friday, everything is on. And Deborah, if you acquire this, you're going to be happy. That's the way it works. 
but a man's life does not consist of his possessions. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, Be sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For Jesus himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And in 1 Timothy 6, 10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Really, really good verse in Timothy. So, but the enemy does this all life. If you just had more, Ken, if you just made 30% more, if you just lived in the five-bedroom apartment, if you just had this, if you just had the security of this, that's where joy would be. It won't be there. But it chokes you because it demands attention every single day. So those are the three things that Jesus said. The word of the kingdom, the word of Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King will come to you in many ways. And every time it comes, not just the first time, but every time it comes, you'll have the opportunity to accept it or reject it. You'll have the opportunity to put it up above, the, put the Lord up above the situation or be encumbered by these choking things that push the Lord out of the first place. But he says, if you'll let the Lord have the first place and let the word of Jesus having the first place be real inside of your heart, you will produce fruit. And I always love the fact that the scripture said 30, 60, and 100 fold, not 5%, 10%, and 15%, which is the way we would do things in the financial market. You know, what's your return on your investment? Well, I can get 10%. I'm in. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said 30 fold, 30 fold, okay, 60 fold, 100 fold. And Jesus said, if you're faithful in the little thing, he actually said the word very little. He said, if you're faithful in this very little thing, then I will put you over 10 cities. He multiplies if we're faithful in the small thing. And we're thinking, yes, but just being faithful and being nice to my sister, this doesn't mean anything. Furthermore, my sister doesn't deserve someone to be nice to her. And this doesn't mean anything. I mean, I can do it, but I need to get over here to the big things. If you're faithful in the little thing, God puts you over 10 cities. But Jesus said, but if you're not faithful in the little thing, you're not going to be faithful over much. So God lets us be in situations so we can be faithful, so he can put us over big things. Unfortunately, many times we're not faithful because we don't rec reckon the thing of God as being important. But because God says it, it's always important. When the Lord is first, the perspective on everything changes. When we're first, the perspective on everything changes. Respect on everything changes. So this is the last, talking about growing in Christ. God provides the growth, the strength. He tells us this is how the enemy is going to tempt you along the way. These are the things that are the potholes. Now, we had a pothole over here on Dresden Drive not too long ago, and it was a tire-eating pothole. As a matter of fact, Helen went through it, and we had to pay a bunch of money to get the car fixed. I mean, it, did, it just wrecked everything. But how stupid would I be to pay a bunch of money to get that car fixed, go right back over to Dreven Drive and go right back in that pothole? You would look at me and, well, you'd say funny things, okay? But that would be so stupid. So Jesus is saying, here are the potholes. Don't fall in this one. Satan has set up a pothole right here. If you put your tire in it, you're going to wreck your alignment. You're going to wreck a whole bunch of things in your, in your car. Don't go in the pothole. And we go, we go flying along going, I wonder about that pothole. Fly right into it. 
fly right into it. But the Lord is telling us the potholes. He said, this is how Satan's going to come at you. Don't let the worries overcome you. Don't let the deceitfulness of riches overcome you. And then the default is you will produce tremendous amounts of fruit. The Lord is faithful. Blessed be his name. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you that you provide the strength for us to grow and become just like you, that you tell us what's going to happen along the way so that we can know that you point things out in our life so we can give it to you and change. We adore you. We love you and we ask you to work deep in our heart and change anything that's not pleasing to you because you are the Lord. I ask specifically, Father, you give us an understanding of how close you are to us every second and how intimately acquainted you are with us and how much you want to have an intimate relation with each one of us in every part of our lives. I ask you now, Lord, your will be done, your kingdom come. We pray blessings for those who are in authority. We pray, Lord, that you touch our world in such a way you be glorified and that you use us to uplift the name of Jesus in every day and in every way we live. In your precious name we pray. Amen.